Welcome to Micro Digressions. This is Spencer Case. And today I'm here with Benedict Beckold. Is that, is that right? Is that the right way to say your name? Yes. You are a philosopher from Sweden living in New York. Is that a correct enough description? Yes, that's right. So I recently read your book, Western Self-Contempt, and I wanted to talk to you about oikophobia and cycles of national decline. But before we get into that, could you talk a little bit about, you know, your history and how it is you got interested in this topic? Uh, yes. So um, uh, academically, as you said, I'm, uh, I'm from Sweden, but I came to the United States already as a teenager, but then studied mostly in Germany, got my PhD in philosophy and classical philology at Heidelberg, and also moved around a lot in uh, mostly among European countries and uh, among various universities for research and so on. And one of the things that I noticed all the time was this uh, self-hate uh, or self-contempt. Uh, that is the topic of the book. I describe it a bit anecdotally in the beginning of the book, but essentially it just got to the point that I just found myself shaking my head with uh, increasing frequency at this sort of knee-jerk self-contempt that I found everywhere. And at some point I realized, well, this is uh, becoming rather ridiculous. And uh, so I decided, well, this has to be analyzed. And it sort of just all came together at some point. I, I never really sat down to do research on this topic. Just my observation as, a, as an academic and just as a human being in general suddenly led me to the topic. And I had a sort of moment where, where the full idea that is then played out in the book sort of crystallized itself in my mind uh, in a matter of, I think, just a minute or two, where I s started to see these patterns that I describe in the book. And then uh, I just had to sit down to, uh, to write it out. So it's not really based on academic research as such. It's more just based on observation and on a lifetime of reading and so on. Could you give me some examples of the sorts of things that you heard that made you think that there's something wrong here? Uh, yeah, one of them uh, I mentioned in the book itself, which took place in, uh, in Italy, where I was a guest researcher for a while. And it was uh, essentially the sort of run-of-the-mill statement that the core contributions of the West are uh, imperialism and domination and such things. Then also, uh, maybe slightly more subtly, but also the statement that, that one may only criticize one's own culture, one may never criticize foreign cultures. That in and of itself may not be purely ochophobic, but it does, it does go hand in hand with ochophobia, with cultural self-hatred, because if we're not allowed to criticize foreign uh, cultures, then it stands to reason somehow that, uh, that they would be better than, uh, than our own because it puts them sort of beyond reproach. And just sort of in general, uh, one thing which was a bit of a pet peeve of mine as a philologist, I would hear fellow philologists in uh, both in Europe and the United States uh, say things like, I cannot say that ancient Greece was superior in any way to, or preferable in any way to ancient Egypt or ancient Persia or any other ancient civilization. And I always wondered to myself, well, if that's really what you think, then why are you studying this? Uh, why are you devoting your life to this pursuit? Now, that doesn't mean, of course, that other civilizations don't have great things to offer as well. But if you put everything on the same level as a matter of course, then why are you even bothering with your field of research? And statements like that rubbed me the wrong way, I suppose. Right. I know what you mean. I have written a bit about this myself, and I'm going to have more to say about it in my book I'm working on now on patriotism, but I want to share one example 
I know you're familiar with because you've read it in an article where I, I mentioned this, but it struck me as a particularly strong example of the kind of thing you're talking about. Oikophobia being, you know, the opposite of xenophobia. Well, opposite in one sense. It isn't love of strangers. It's hate of home or hatred of, of oneself or one's own group in some way. This was when I was a Fulbright student grantee to Egypt in 2013, studying an Islamic philosopher named Mystical Way. So I was at this regional Fulbright grantee meeting in Amman, Jordan, where I think about half of the Fulbright grantees from Morocco to, I don't know, somewhere else in the Middle East would meet together to talk about what they were working on. And then, you know, another half of them, I think, met in Rabat in Morocco. And so we give these short presentations about what it was we were doing. And it was about half research and about half teaching. I can't remember whether the service was a third categorization or not. But anyway, I was struck by the presentation of this 20-something woman who was teaching in Morocco. and. She had mentioned that she had been teaching these kids, I, I don't know what, probably English in like a middle school or maybe it was younger. I don't remember exactly the grade she said, but she said that she had 12 days of instruction to teach these kids about the United States. And now keep in mind, the Fulbright grant is given by the U.S. State Department as a way of being a kind of mini ambassadorship. You know, you're supposed to be being an ambassador to your own country. So she isn't just an American. She's an, an American in a quasi-official capacity as an ambassador to her country, okay? So what she described was she went through all 12 days and made America out to be so unrelentingly terrible that it sounds like something Kim Jong-un or Osama bin Laden might have concocted. Like she literally described slurs against Arabs that were in use in the United States. I mean, there are people who use them, sure, but like to present this kind of thing is like paradigmatic of American culture. When you haven't talked about the moon landing, you know, this kind of stuff. It was so negative. She said, this is part of her presentation. She said one of the Moroccan teachers, or actually, I think multiple Moroccan teachers, confronted her and said, look, you're shattering these kids' dreams. You know, they look to America and they think freedom and they think prosperity and they think the movie heroes they've seen and in, in sports and whatever. And you're just like crushing them. And she just persisted and not only persisted, like doubled down. But then this is the detail that just really puts it over the top for me. Toward the end of this, she said that one of the kids raised his hand and said, Mark Twain was a great American writer. Like, at least he's trying to find something, you know? It isn't all terrible. We've at least got some good writers, okay? So she said that she went to the library and checked out a copy of The Innocents Abroad, where, I don't know if you've read it, but not Mark Twain's best work, I don't think, but it's his travel book where he travels through, like, Italy, and he does go to Morocco, he goes to various countries, and he's just sort of scathing in this criticism of everything. So she reads him the stuff he wrote about Moroccans at the time that he traveled through, which is, of course, scathing like everything. She said, see, Mark Twain hates you. Hmm. And then 
And then she just <laughs> deprived the kid of every last, you know, positive thing he had to say about the United States. And the thing was, she volunteered this to a group of other Americans who were present in the Middle East being ambassadors to their country as if she were proud of it. Mm -hmm. You know, as if she were proud of it. I'm sure she was proud of it. She seemed to be. And nobody criticized her. Nobody was outraged. They clapped, like, at the end of her presentation, you know. Whereas if anybody had run down another country like this in the United States, they would have been called a bigot, you know. I remember I said something to her after the presentation, and I don't remember what she said back to me, but it was something incredibly cliche. This is a higher form of patriotism or something. It's like, sure, sure. Mm -hmm. That indicates not just that this woman has a, a pathology, but this general class of people does, because she can expect correctly to give a presentation like that in front of people who are Fulbright grantees, Fulbright scholars, and expect exactly the reception that she got. Yeah. And that stuck with me. Yeah, I, I remember reading uh, that article of yours, and it's interesting to hear more details about that episode directly from you. And uh, when, I, when I said that, I'm sure she was proud, because you said as if she were proud, and I think she was, because as, as, as uh, I discussed in the book, I mean, much of the point of okophobia is, of course, to denigrate the environment around you so as to raise yourself up individually. So, uh, so that vanity, that pride in one's own self at the expense of one's own culture seems to be a recurring theme. So I wanted to probe the definition of oikophobia a little bit. We maybe could add to what you said about it as a kind of opposite of xenophobia. Because I think like the oikophobic person remains in the home that's being denigrated. So like I would think that somebody who just immigrates to a different country and adopts a completely different identity, like suppose this woman migrated from the United States to Sweden or Morocco or what have you. And then like that said, okay, I'm a Swede now I'm Moroccan now, and I'm a patriotic to that country. I wouldn't call that person an oikophobe. Uh, yeah, I'm glad you wouldn't because otherwise I probably would qualify as an oikophobe myself being an immigrant from Sweden to the United States. Some people have actually told me since you don't like Sweden very much anymore, and now you're in America, doesn't that make you an oikophobe? I said, I think that's a special case, right? Because generally, orcophobes, as you say, they they remain in their own country. The special cases, of course, those special cases happen more often now with travel and, and moving from country to country becoming easier than it used to be. But an orcophobe is generally somebody who might jet set around the world and so on, but who generally stays in his or her own country. So I think those are special cases. Uh, if you adopt a new culture and you become a citizen or something like that of a new country, then, yeah, that doesn't quite fit the paradigm, I would say. It's actually surprising how few people do live in other countries when you consider how globalized we, in fact, are. I read a book called Why Nationalism. I forget the name of the author, Yale Tamir or something like that. But she presents the statistic that only 4% of people are currently living in countries other than their their birth country, which suggests something about the power of national ties, right? Yeah, to some extent, although I think it's also an economic factor. I mean, if you consider that a sixth of the world's population or something like that is, is in China, in the country where you are, and most of them would not probably have the means to just pick up their bits and pieces and, and move to another country, I think, and same thing, not just for China, obviously, for many parts of the world where they would not have such means. 
Uh, I think that probably comes goes a long way to explain why that's the case. But certainly, yeah, national ties are certainly part of that story. But uh, I think probably as the world grows wealthier and wealthier, we're going to see more of that. And I mean, that's the regular process of globalization, changing country that that has been going on for a long time. Although we are we are living in a world now where, as uh, I imagine you would probably agree, uh, nationalistic or cultural frontiers, civilizational frontiers in the world are are growing a little sharper. And so that might, to some extent, hem that development. But overall, I'd say it, it will probably continue. So I'm curious why it is that you say that you don't like Sweden very much or you, you left Sweden or you find the U.S. preferable. Yes. Yeah, I, I don't want to be mean-spirited uh, saying I don't like Sweden. It's uh, Sweden has many fine qualities, obviously. Uh, I was lucky to have grown up there as opposed to many other countries in the world where I think it would have been much worse to grow up. Uh, my problem with Sweden um, is simply that, at least the Sweden of my childhood, it, it has grown a bit more cosmopolitan since then. But by and large, I find Sweden, and not just Sweden, I mean that part of Europe and that part of the world, tends to be, um, I would say a similar thing about Germany, for example tends to be um, very convinced of its own way of doing things. The best thing that many Swedes can say about a foreigner is that, oh, he's just like us. Whereas here in the United States, I have seen no people, no country uh, so open to other ways of doing things, so open to foreigners uh, like myself. I mean, I'm a, I'm a naturalized American now, but I was a foreigner. And no people so welcoming of, uh, of outsiders as the United States. Uh, so that's something that I've certainly benefited from. When I go to Sweden, I think it's a nice place in many ways, but almost everyone thinks the same. And if you think differently, then people just won't understand you. Now, we certainly have a lot of, a lot of intolerance of differing viewpoints here in the United States as well, but at least the United States is large uh, and diverse enough that all different kinds of viewpoints are represented for good and bad. Uh, whereas in Sweden, the possible window of debate and discussion, not just in Sweden, I think in much of Europe in general, uh, is much more limited uh, than it is here in the United States. Interesting, because a, a lot of educated Americans would think the opposite, would think that Europe is, is very broad-minded and diverse. And That's because they're not as, uh, yeah, sorry, no, that's because they're not as educated as, as they themselves uh, would think. That, that might sound a little arrogant on my part, but I have lived in most European countries. Well, I've lived in all of the major European countries, basically, for many years, and uh, uh, in addition to the United States. And there's no question that uh, Americans are much, much more open-minded, both intellectually and also on a regular person-to-person -person basis than most Europeans. Well, since I'm not an oikophobe, I'm happy to take that compliment. Yes, excellent. So a purely cosmopolitan person is somebody who would be sort of detached from one's own country, but would not have any kind of self-loathing or contempt towards one's own country. It would just be kind of indifferent. Whereas I think oikophobia is an attitude that goes beyond that to where it, I think almost think of it as somebody who has a bad relationship with their father. And it's not just like, he's not part of my life. I don't care about him anymore. But like actively hating them and allowing the hatred of the father to influence how they see other people and that kind of thing. I almost think of it as something like that. Do you think that's fair? Yeah. And uh, I think that is, uh, that's hitting the nail on the head because, and, and there's a reason, of course, why okophobia is found particularly, not only, but particularly among the young, uh, because uh, they're the ones who are still, to some extent, at least in a state of emotional intellectual rebellion against their families or against their parents. And that will often bleed over 
into uh, uh, into uh, rejection of their own culture as well. There's a passage in Plato where he talks about people who dislike their parents and their country. He sort of talks about it in the same breath, as if one will lead to the other. Um, and I, th- I think there's a lot of truth to that. Now, of course, okophobia also occurs a lot among academics, for example, including older academics. But I think that rejection of... Uh, of parents is definitely a part of it, and that's part of why we have that affliction so uh, so diffused among the young. One of the things about your book, I was sort of surprised as I read it, it was, it was not the book I was expecting. I was expecting a book like Douglas Murray's War on the West, which I'm sure you, you're probably familiar with, but it's a different kind of book than that. Douglas Murray in that book is sort of cataloging the instances of boycophobia that are current and, and happening now and thinking about current responses to them. Whereas you are more giving this, this broad cycle of history that describes oikophobia as kind of a stage that cultures or civilizations go through when they're on the decline. So I think the two books actually would be good to read together for that reason. They sort of complement each other. But this thing that you do in giving this, this grand sweep of history it strikes me as kind of old fashioned. I'm a history buff. I don't have that much formal education in history, but from what I gather, it seems like the things that historians are doing now are much more narrow in their focus. And you're doing something that's sort of sort of sweeping. You know, here's a an account of the cycle of histories that applies to maybe not absolutely every country, but ancient Greece and Rome and maybe the United States and today and France and. And so I'm wondering if you could comment on the kind of history that you're, you're doing with this book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So first, yeah, regarding uh, Douglas Murray, um, as you say, indeed, it's a very different kind of book. Uh, I'm a philosopher, as you know, as you are. We are colleagues. Um, Douglas Murray is not a philosopher, so that in and of itself is a uh, reason for the difference. He's more of a journalist, journalist, maybe slash pundit to some extent. Uh, I don't want to be unfair to him. I'm not sure what he would call himself, but so his approach is more journalistic. He lists all these different kinds of problems that he sees that are an expression of the war on the West. And so, yeah, my scope is is entirely different. Regarding history, yes. So uh, this is actually a point that I address to some extent in the book, the fact that it's over the uh, later chapters, the fact that uh, what I'm doing is something that is out of fashion because uh, I say at some point, uh, also a little bit early on, I think in the introduction, but then especially later, that this kind of history has sort of gone out of fashion. Nowadays, historians, and this is to some extent an inheritance of the postmodernists in the 50s and 60s, basically after World War II, this kind of history went out of fashion, where you take these sweeping views of history. You have people like Popper, uh, and then, of course, later Foucault and, and gentlemen of that group who uh, take a much more atomistic view of history and who say that we cannot see larger patterns in history and that any larger pattern is just a, a reflection of the author and is just the author projecting his own personality onto history. So I discuss that a little bit in the book. I don't get into it too much, but I do say that, for example, if you say that a particular pattern of history is an imposition on the part of the author, then you would also have to say, in my opinion, that the insistence that there can be no pattern whatsoever to history is also an imposition of the author. Because why do you assume that there can be no pattern? That's an imposition from the author. There can be patterns. Is it so the thing, the thing is this, all history is storytelling, all history is a narration. 
And the historian always has to choose what he decides to focus on, which pieces of evidence he takes into consideration, and so on. Everything is a narration. There's no such thing as, quote-unquote, pure history, right? There are some writers of, on history and some philosophers of history have thought that there is such a thing as pure history. For example, uh, Herbert Butterfield comes to mind. But that's a complete illusion. There is no such thing. So whenever we write about history, we always have to interpret. There's always going to be a quote-unquote imposition from the author, from the historian or from the philosopher of history, as in my case. And the question is not, is this an imposition from the author? Is this a pattern or not a pattern in history? You have to approach each narration of history on its own merits. There are some people who would reject my kind of view of history simply because it shows a pattern. But those people who reject it for that reason, they sell themselves short because they haven't stopped to consider the merits of my particular case. And I also make the point that I'm not talking about a total history. I'm talking about the history of orcophobia. And I make the specific point that this conclusions should not be drawn from this to other parts of history. And that's part of the reason why I reject people like, for example, Spengler. Some people have compared my book to Spengler's book, and I say it's quite different because Spengler believes that he can explain everything, essentially. And that is foolish because history is far too complex for any one such pattern to encompass everything. But if we take a more modest view of our own explanatory abilities of history and we focus on a particular thing, as I do, I focus on the phenomenon of ochophobia, to then say from the outset that no pattern could possibly be discoverable that's an imposition by the author. I'm aware that what I am doing seems old-fashioned, but I most certainly reject the idea that any particular pattern in history must ipso be false. You're reminding me of something I've thought before, which is that not only is this version of history seemingly out of fashion, but philosophy of history seems to have almost completely vanished. Like I'm, I'm reading the book, The Concept of History, I'm forgetting the name of the author right now, but you, you must be familiar with it. But it came out in the late 40s. You mean Collingwood, the idea of history or? Oh, yes. The idea of history. Yeah, Collingwood, yeah. Yeah. And I'm reading that and it's a good book, but I thought about it the other day, like what's a more recent philosophy of history book that I've read or even that I'm familiar with and none come to mind. I'm sure they're out there, but. Boy, it seems to have seems to have completely gone out of fashion. This entire branch of of inquiry. I don't know why that would be. I don't know why the most recent book in the field of philosophy of history that you've read is uh, Western Self Contempt. I dare say, but I I address a little bit in the book why it has gone out of fashion. I sort of say it in a joking way in in one of the end notes, basically that World War Two and uh, and Allied carpet bombing took the Hegelian spirit out of Germany. Basically, most of the reason, not entirely, I don't want to simplify too much, but most of the reason why this kind of history went out of fashion is because this kind of history was propagated by insane people, by Stalin and Hitler and uh, Mao Zedong and so on, people who thought that they have understood history, they know the goal of history, and it's their task to bring about a certain conclusion. And so their view, by necessity, since their goal is totalitarian or was totalitarian, their view of history necessarily was also totalitarian because everything has to produce a particular, everything has to come together to produce a particular outcome. And so understandably, there was a certain disgust, one might always, almost say, with this type of history. And that, of course, opened up the space for people like Foucault 
he's, I mean, many others, but he's of course the most prominent example to say that, no, we're just going to take a very atomistic view of history. We're going to look at this particular thing, right? We're going to write a history of insane asylums in a particular period in Europe, right? And that's history. And that anything that seeks to go beyond that is a waste of time, is totalitarian, and, uh, and will just lead to bloodshed and so on. And Popper has a similar kind of attitude. So I think that's most of the reason why it has gone out of fashion. And I will agree that a lot of philosophy of history really has been quite poor, but that doesn't mean that we should reject the, the field itself. Collingwood, this book, The Idea of History that you mentioned, he's actually, to go back to your earlier question, I think he's a good example of the kind of philosopher of history or historian who rejects a pattern simply because it's a pattern without realizing that that makes him just as imposing upon history as are the people that he criticizes. So Collingwood, he paints this whole structure of what you have to do and what you have to be in order to qualify as a historian and in order to qualify as a philosopher of history without realizing that everything he says is his own pattern that he is imposing upon the field. So as I say in the book, if you really want to be true, and I, about the postmodernists as well, that if the postmodernists were really true, to their own view, they wouldn't reject something simply because it falls into a particular model because they themselves are trying to get rid of strictures. They are trying to get rid of preconceived models. So if that's the case, then you have to be consistent and go all the way and say, well, okay, I'm going to read this particular book and I'm not going to judge it simply because it has a different methodology or because it has a different scope than my own work. I'm simply going to judge it purely on its own merits. And I think a lot of people who reject the field of the philosophy of history, they forget that. And, and they become very close-minded and they reject things that might add to the truth, that might add to the empirical data that we have. The problem is that somebody like Spengler or Toynbee, for example, I think Toynbee is a bit better than Spengler, but it's a similar kind of a problem that if you think that you can basically explain everything, that turns people off because nobody can explain everything. And that makes people believe that, okay, here's another philosophy of history who thinks he can explain everything and so we don't need to bother with him. But I say specifically in the book, the paradigm of okophobia cannot explain everything, but it can explain okophobia. And so uh, I think uh, people have to remove their, uh, their methodological strictures that academia has imposed upon them and just read a book and try to judge it on its own terms, on its own merits. So the Collingwood book, he does say a couple of things that made me think, huh, that seems a little off. He contrasts Herodotus and Thucydides and he seems to think that, that Herodotus is markedly better in, in one respect, which is that Thucydides imposes too much in the way of, of having law-like explanations for things. But I mean, I read Herodotus and I think, I think, my God, this guy needs an editor. You know, <laughs> you can clearly tell that this was centuries before the footnote was invented because, you know, he definitely needs to put some of these things not in the main text. One thing that he says is, and he reiterates this, like it's not the, the historian's job to predict anything. And it reminds me of something similar I've heard lately, which was, I don't know if you're familiar with Intelligence Squared. It's like a, a podcast slash debate network. Yeah, I've heard of it too. The episodes are uneven, but they had one on whether Britain should have entered the First World War, which I listened to. And that was interesting. I learned some things there. But one thing that was very curious to me is that both sides were, were stuck by this, well, especially, the, especially the side that, that answered, no, we shouldn't be going to war. 
or where we should not have gone to war. They kept accusing the other side of relying on hypotheticals. And they kept saying, history is not about hypotheticals. History is not about counterfactuals. If you're doing counterfactuals, you're not doing history. And then I thought, well, like, obviously you can't debate World War One, and should we have joined unless you have some idea of what would have happened had you not, you know, like there's no way to have that debate. And in fact, there's no way to discuss any historical event without recognizing that it's like a hinge, like things would have gone differently had, I don't know, the South won in the, in the Civil War, what have you. You have to recognize that different things would have happened and so I'm wondering what kind of prejudice it is that's preventing people from recognizing like, yeah, if we identify any patterns of all, at all in history, of course, they have to tell us something about what to expect. And of course, they have to tell us something about what would have happened. But I don't know if this is like a, a holdover from positivism or, or what that's making these people reason this way. Yeah, I'm actually glad you reminded me of Collingwood on Thucydides, because now that I think back on that book, I, I remember being uh, particularly outraged at that passage. As you may know from reading my book, I practically worship Thucydides. And I, although, in fact, I do like Herodotus as well, where he said he needs his letter. I think that might uh, be true to an extent, but he's also very messy, which uh, well, I guess is what you mean. But I actually kind of like his messiness a little bit. It makes it very lively. But yeah. Your Collingwood doesn't like Thucydides because he emphasizes things like human nature and human nature is a constant throughout history, right? And so the same kinds of things tend to repeat because humans will always be humans. And this is something that Popper, right, also uh, rejects completely. And he, and Popper doesn't even bother to explain why he thinks that human nature is not a factor in history. He just rejects the notion outright and says, and, and believes it's ridiculous. So yeah, there is why people reject this idea of patterns in history, I think people are just, I, I think it's a particular kind of mind that does this, just like it's a particular kind of mind that does see patterns in history. People who see patterns in history tend to be, and I, I guess I would include myself here, tend to be people who are, and I'm not saying this to sort of you know praise myself or anything, but they, they tend to be people who are a little more poetic, perhaps, who see, because you know a story is something poetic, right? It's something beautiful uh, in a certain sense. It's more filled with meaning, quote unquote, meaning than just a, a series of facts, right? And if you, look at, if you look at the people who have written this kind of history or this historians and philosophers of history have done this, Spengler, Toynbee, now I don't like Spengler particularly, but if you just look at the kind of person he is, Egon Friedel, uh, the Austrian author, uh, not quite as famous, but he also wrote this kind of history, which is, uh, which does certainly see patterns. He's one of my favorites. He's a very poetic kind of a historian. It's that kind of a person who does that, who, uh, who uh, when they set out to uh, give a historical account, at the same time also set out to tell a story. And they're honest about the fact that they're telling a story. Whereas the people who are at the opposite end of the spectrum, they tend to be I don't want to stereotype too much, but they tend to be more academic, quite frankly. They tend to be uh, maybe somewhat drier personalities, Collingwood, Popper, uh, and so on. And they um, believe that anything that is poetic, they themselves, I'm sure, wouldn't phrase it in this way, but that's how I see them. They tend to believe that things that are poetic, that are creative, thereby contain, it might be beautiful, but contain less less academic truth value. And I think they resent uh, that approach to history. And I think they fail to see that what they do themselves is also telling a story. 
just it might be a somewhat less interesting story for a lot of people to read, but they are telling a story because everything we do about history is interpretation. We cannot get away from that. So in addition to, to the historical um, reason about larger patterns in history being, being uh, totalitarian, I mean, having the potential of being abused by totalitarian dictators, I think that might be another reason why there is that rejection of people who see patterns in history. Because most people in academia are not like that. And it's the academics ultimately who, who do these things. I mean, my, my book was published by an academic press and, and I'm uh, thankful for having had that opportunity. But I, I have no illusion that the kind of book that I just wrote is not typical of what you would expect from, 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 a, from a book on this kind of subject from an academic press, because this is not what academics tend to do. And, and they consider it to be uh, amateurish to tell a story to, uh, or to amateurish to be open about the fact that you're telling a story and, and they prefer a different kind of history, not realizing that they are actually in the same boat as the rest of us, because we're all telling stories. There's the idea that scientific knowledge and in particular physics and chemistry and the hard sciences and, and mathematics, that is paradigmatic of knowledge and anything that has an aesthetic element or has a, a more, it's more humanities leaning kind of an element to it is, is lesser and second rate or something. Yeah. And um, yeah. And I think there is a certain jealousy on the part of uh, a lot of academic humanists, a jealousy of this, of the natural sciences uh, that they uh, supposedly have this greater access to the quote unquote pure truth than we do in the humanities and social sciences. And so they try to, uh, they try to strive for that. I mean, Collingwood himself and I mean, others as well, plenty of them, certainly Popper, they tend to emphasize the scientific nature of their, of their studies. Carol Quigley is another one, perfect example. I mean, he, in the very beginning, right, in his book on the, on the patterns of civilizations, right, he goes out of his way to say that we can get, we can be quite scientific in the study of history as well. The, those of us who try to incorporate that aesthetic element in our accounts of history we are uh, anathema to their project. And so they consider us, I don't want to say us, because I mean, I don't want to put myself in a group, especially since I have a lot of critique for people like Spengler and Toynbee and others, but they consider uh, philosophers of history who uh, are more open about the aesthetic and narrative element of their work to be, um, to be a thorn in the side of their own projects. I just remembered that probably Francis Fukuyama would also count as a, as a more recent um, philosopher of history. But anyway, I'll set, I'll set that aside for right. now. Yes. This is very interesting, but I need to go back to what you were saying about, about oikophobia and the cycle. So I think it maybe would be good if, if we started with Greece, like ancient Greece, because you see the cycle unfolding there from between like the Persian Wars to the decline of Athens. You see this, this cycle that you then see reiterated in Rome and then in later societies. So could you walk us through what the pattern was that you see in, in Greece? Yeah. So Greece is the first civilization, uh, in certainly first Western civilization that offers us this because it is the first civilization that has a measure of egalitarianism, democracy, obviously not egalitarianism as we think of it today, but for them, certainly, for, by ancient standards, certainly a strong measure of egalitarianism and democracy. 
and and intellectual openness, where it's possible to sit down and debate things where intellectuals can do their work in relative peace without being uh, harassed by the government, by the powers that be, and so on. Because all of the all of these things are prerequisites for orcophobia. <clears throat> Excuse me. So basically, yes. Yeah, so um, I start uh, more or less around the Persian Wars because before then the Greeks certainly you have the the uh, early beginnings of of a high culture of a high civilization well before the Persian Wars. But before the Persian Wars, they are still fairly patriarchal, parochial, uh, one might say. The rise of democracy in Athens is also, does begin also around the time of the Persian Wars. So, so that's very significant. But so the Persian Wars is sort of a starting point in the cycle because it's a civilizational crisis. Uh, it's the closest to extinction that uh, many of the Greek city-states come because, of course, the, uh, Persia is, of course, the, the mightiest empire in the area, and uh, is, gets close to wiping out many of the Greek city-states. I mean, they, the Athenians have to evacuate their city. The Persians uh, burn the Acropolis and all, all of this. And so when you have that kind of a uh, civilizational setback where you basically hit rock bottom, uh, orcophobia is unthinkable because everybody has to band together to repel the common threat. You can have particular individuals who might be traders and so on and who sell out for Persian gold and so on. But by and large, society as a whole, as a mass, will, ra will rally together because they have to. They have no choice. It's that or, or die. And so once they are able to repel the Persians, as they do, the uh, Athenians, at least, uh, not all of the Greeks, but the Athenians build up an empire, uh, are able, because of the uh, uh, expulsion of the Persians, are able to build up an empire, establish great wealth, dominance, trade in the Eastern Mediterranean, control over other islands, and so on. And all of these things lead to a sense of security. Now, the state of security in Athens, in any ancient polity really, is not as great as what we enjoy right now in the modern world, or at least what we think we enjoy in the modern world. And so ochrophobia, that's one of the reasons why ochrophobia cannot become as strong in the ancient world, because there's still always a certain precariousness to civilizational existence. For example, Greece itself does not produce, Athens does not produce enough food to feed its own citizens, right? They have to import grain from the Black Sea region and so on. So there is a certain precariousness that we certainly don't feel in the United States today, for example. But by and large, they are able to uh, live in a society, the Athenians certainly, where there is intellectual openness, where there is democracy, where there is not this civilizational sense of urgency that we're about to be overrun by another nation by another people. And so all of these things come together to create leisure, to create, to create a state in which intellectuals have time and ability and access to knowledge to start questioning their own traditions. This happens in, uh, in drama and uh, among the philosophers. I talk a little, about, a little bit in, in the book about how Attic drama, especially Euripides, begins to question Greek religion and Greek customs, Greek norms, which, which is not a condemnation in and of itself. The fact that I, uh, is also worth pointing out, the fact that I think that a particular personage is significant uh, on the ochrophobic trajectory does not mean that I reject that person. I adore Euripides. I think he's one of the greatest poets in history. But he does play a role in the increasing questioning, Athenian self-questioning, Athenian questioning of Greek religion, uh, of the gods, and so on. And all of those things, the fall of traditional religion, are a very major factor in the rise of ochophobia because all civilizations are religious early on, certainly much more than they, than they become later on. And so part of rejecting one's own civilization is rejecting one's own religion. That's, that's often sort of the first step 
you reject your own religion and then the rejection of the civilization as a whole follows. And so the fact that ancient Greek religion begins to be questioned in Athens is that first step. And then you have uh, late in the 5th century BC, early 4th century, um, also after the, especially after the Peloponnesian War, but also to some extent during it, uh, a group of philosophers who, uh, a lot of them students of Socrates, Socrates himself also to some extent, I think Nietzsche overemphasizes the role that Socrates uh, plays in being subversive to the Athenian order, but he certainly plays a part in it. But I think there, there are some of his students uh, are more important actually in this regard in questioning Athenian and, and in questioning Greek ways. And if you don't have to fight, I mean, it's, it's an old cliche, but it's a cliche for a reason. If you don't have to fight for something, you forget, you often forget what it's worth. You start to take it for granted. And you have a generation now, well after the Persian Wars, who uh, have not had to fight to the same kind of extent for what they have. Now, of course, as people who know ancient Greece well uh, will tell you, uh, of course, um, there were far, many, far more wars and far more battles of various kinds between Greek city-states even after the Persian Wars. Than, so most people would have had been in some sort of battle rather. But most of these battles were not civilizational encounters and they were not crucial encounters, right? You could have some sort of, um, you could have a battle between two city-states about some particular issue, about some particular land, and they were basically shoving matches between hoplites uh, with some casualties, and then everybody kind of went back home and continued with their business. Did you, yeah. did you mean to say there were little skirmishes like this after the Persian Wars or after the Peloponnesian Wars? Both. The Greeks never really stopped fighting each other. They only stopped fighting each other when the Persians came. The Peloponnesian War is, of course, the, the, the major one, the sort of the largest uh, intra-Greek war. But there were always all kinds of wars and, and, and individual battles between various city-states for all kinds of reasons. And, the, and that's another reason why Ecophobia could not be as strong among the Greeks as it is now, because most people did know what it was like to fight. But there wasn't that sense of urgency as there was during the Persian Wars. And so uh, this sense of security, wealth, leisure, and so on, opens up room for intellectuals to start this process of this process of self-questioning. We all need, human beings do need an antagonist for the purpose of self-identification. People who think that all they want is peace and love and harmony, they themselves need the antagonist, namely the people who do not believe those things. So everyone needs an antagonist. And when the Persians are the antagonists, that's physically more dangerous, but it means also that the Greeks aren't going to go after each other. Once the large civilizational exter external threat has been eliminated, the new antagonist becomes fellow Greeks and fellow Athenians, because you have to stand out somehow or other. You could stand out by being a hero, a brave warrior against the Persians, and when that's finished, you have to stand out in some other way. And you do that most easily by degrading those around you, because the Persians are no longer relevant. So that after the Peloponnesian War, we would be in the high oikophobic stage, I guess. And the people who come to my mind when I think of this are like the cynics, like uh, Diogenes, people like this. But Diogenes thought of himself as like, I've heard, he's thought of as being a cosmopolitan, perhaps the first cosmopolitan. There was no special self-contempt as a Greek, was there? It's just a universal distancing himself from all other humanity. Uh, no, I think there was some degree of uh, contempt, especially for Greek ways and, and for his fellow Greeks, um, because he often, I mean, he, different Diogenes, right, Diogenes Lertius, 
talks about this in his Lives of Eminent Philosophers, how the Diogenes the Cynic um, uh, would sort of go out of his way to break Greek norms specifically. Now, those are the norms he were surrounded by, so those were the norms that were easiest for him to break, but that is part of ochophobia. You have to stand out somehow, so the easiest thing is to attack that which is right next to you, not to attack the um, the customs of the Persians or, or of some of some far-flung country. And so that which is right next to your own culture becomes the easiest target for your own vanity, right? Uh, and I think Diogenes uh, fits very well into that model. He uh, went out of his way to uh, shock. And, uh, you know, he has all these philosophical stunts which emphasize his own purported honesty and wisdom and degrades those of his fellow Greeks. Uh, and his, I don't want to say fellow Athenians because he wasn't originally from Athens, but he lived and came to live in Athens uh, eventually and for a long time. So I, I think there's definitely also something uh, not just anti-humanity, but anti-Greek, uh, anti-Athenian. And in fact, since he's, in a way, he's pro-humanity, I mean, quote-unquote pro-humanity, because emphasizing himself as a cosmopolitan means, of course, that he belongs to all of humanity. So I, it's not simply that he's a misanthrope uh, and just wants to be left alone, uh, although to some extent he's also a misanthrope. It's also the fact that he thinks that, his, that the entire world is his home, that all of humanity is his home. And if that's the case, then the Greeks in particular have to be uh, downgraded. Yeah, this idea of connectedness to a particular culture as being something that gets in the way of, of a, a kind of cosmopolitanism. So you could see cosmopolitanism and oikophobia coming together in this way, which is that you could be an oikophobe and think of it as being instrumental to some kind of ultimate cosmopolitanism. In effect, what you're actually expressing just is more more contempt than it is universal love. Exactly. And, and this is the, uh, the role that cosmopolitanism and that a sort of uh, a supposed love for all of humanity uh, plays in orcophobia, I think is very important. And it's something I talk about when I talk about orcophobia as relativism and orcophobia as positivism. The fact that there is the goal of all of humanity becoming one, uh, a, a common utopianist project for all of humanity, if that's the case, uh, as you said, the own civilization is a stumbling block on that path uh, because all civilizations believe themselves to be special in some way. And so the love that such people have for humanity, I think very often is secondary to the hatred or contempt that they have for their own culture. Uh, and the love of humanity is often just a mask in front of something that's far more sinister. What's interesting, I think, about Diogenes in terms of the cycle of history that you're talking about is, boy, did they throw Socrates under the bus for a lot less. I mean, you had his student Alcibiades certainly didn't do him any favors, switching sides in the Peloponnesian Wars more than once and this kind of stuff. But in terms of his personal behavior and conduct, he was far less obnoxious than Diogenes the Cynic. And I assume his followers would have been even more obnoxious. And yet, did they put these people to death? Did they exile them or did they just sort of like accept it? Yeah, they didn't put them to death. And that's actually very funny you, the way you put it. I think they, uh, boy, did they uh, uh, put him to death for a lot less. Yeah, that's true. I mean, Socrates was unlucky because he lived uh, at a time when the, uh, or, or his uh, his apex, if you will, was at a time when 
the Athenians had just lost uh, the Peloponnesian War, and so that was a that was a time of general social collapse uh, on many fronts in Athens. Um, and so Socrates was one of the unlucky ones because he refused to listen to the new government or to the temporary government uh, after the uh, after the after the defeat. Later on, uh, no, I mean a lot of Athenians were certainly disgusted with Diogenes, uh, and and that was sort of Diogenes' intended goal anyway, because he was. According to most accounts, anyway, I mean, he he went out of his way to be publicly obscene and rude and so on, and uh, but no, they weren't put to death or exiled or anything like that. Really, that is in in and of itself a sign of uh, the fact that Athens and parts of Greece, anyway, have achieved a condition where deviants, social deviants, are no longer conceived as a threat. Right, in a situation where everyone has to band together for the purpose of protecting a civilization, for protecting the homeland, there is much less tolerance necessarily for anyone who would deviate from that. And we see this in our own civilization as well, right? This is something I say in the book that our Western societies tend to become, tend to grow more tolerant as they develop because they can afford social deviance uh, without this meaning that the civilization will go under. Now, a lot of people think I'm wrong here because, because of cancel culture and all of this and certain elements of society are becoming more censorious. And that's certainly true. But by and large, if you compare our current state with a uh, hundred years ago, for example, in the United States, uh, there is much more freedom uh, for uh, deviant and, and subversive thought uh, now than there was then. And the same pattern holds for Greece and for most societies because the richer and the wealthier and the more uh, secure and prosperous you become, the less you are hurt by people like Diogenes, who are social deviants and who don't want to contribute to the common cause, who just sit around in the market and you know go to the bathroom in public and so on. So Diogenes is lucky in the sense that he lives a little later on, right? He's a lot younger than Socrates, so he lives at a time when those such things do not lead to execution. Which is not to say, of course, that I think that Diogenes should have been executed. <laughs> I most certainly don't. Of course, uh, and I, there are actually some parts of uh, Diogenes uh, and his philosophy that I actually kind of appreciate, but there's no question in my mind that he's an orcophobe. So this would then be the part of the cycle where Greek culture is starkly in decline or sharply in decline, and yet it's really after this phase that it becomes spread to other countries. You've got Alexander, you've got the appropriation of you know, the Greek humanities by the Romans. And that's really why Greek thought endures to this day, because it's spread beyond Greece. So do you still think of that as being a kind of, of decline? In what sense is it a decline? I, I do, because those things that you're referring to, that's sort of the afterlife of Greek civilization, if I can put it that way. The decline takes place already in the latter half of the 5th century and, and of the early 4th century because those are the times when more and more Greeks become atheists, where they stop believing in their own gods, in their own religion, where they become less tied to Greek norms and so on. I mean, again, talking here about the elite, right? Not about the regular Attic farmer. So that is the decline. And everything else is a new civilization. Now, civilizations that have connections to the Greeks in some way and that realize the greatness of Greece, and so they play a, a crucial part in spreading the cultural heritage of Greece, but it is not Greek civilization itself. I mean, Macedonia they speak Greek, right? But it's really a different culture. And the Greeks themselves, further to the south, would have said the same thing. They didn't think the Macedonians were their equals uh, in any way. And the Macedonians are at an earlier civilizational stage. They're mostly pastoralists 
at a time when the Greeks, uh, when the Athenians certainly have a high civilization already. And so why there are certain cultural ties between the Macedonians and the Greeks, it is a different civilization. Now, because they speak Greek, right, there is access to Greek knowledge and to Greek wisdom, right? Alexander worships Homer, for example, and so on. And so he considers himself a descendant, at least, of, of Heracles, right, to, to, to walk in the footsteps of Heracles, to conquer the world, and so on. It is a different culture uh, that conquers the Middle East and that, and that conquers Persia. It is not, quote-unquote, Greek culture that does that. It's Macedonian culture, which is partly Greek, but it is a different culture. And the Romans, that's obviously a different culture altogether. The Romans are intelligent enough to recognize the greatness of Greece. That becomes part of the problem in Rome then, of course, where Romans begin to question their own traditions because they become seduced by Greek culture. And so they help spread Greek culture by partly Hellenizing themselves. But again, that is not the Greeks doing that. That's a different state doing it. And so as for the Greeks themselves, yes, their culture has already declined in the 4th and, uh, and 5th centuries. So I wanted to press you on a couple of things that you said. So you defend what Socrates against Nietzsche, as you said. So let me just read this passage. Socrates is not, as Nietzsche would have it, in the birth of tragedies, so much the conspiring destroyer of Greece as part of a natural process of self-destruction that cultures in general go through, a process in which Socrates has more than enough accomplices. But the word accomplices and the fact that it's the process of self-destruction suggests you do think that Socrates is partly to blame. And no matter how much you protest and say, I don't mean to suggest any kind of blame here, I don't see any other way of reading that. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, maybe uh, the word accomplice wasn't the, the best chosen word uh, in that particular sentence. I'd have to think about that. When I say accomplices, so I'm not referring so much to uh, Socrates himself as people like Diogenes, because when it comes to someone like Diogenes, it's really a pretty deliberate effort of being anti-Greek, which is not the case uh, with Socrates, I think, at all. I mean, Socrates does clearly consider himself superior to his fellow Greeks, but I mean, understandably so. He is obviously much more intelligent than most other people, but he's not anti-Greek as such. And I mean, he does fight, as I also point out in the book, he does fight for his own city and very bravely so. But yeah, I mean, I think the one doesn't necessarily exclude the other. So Socrates is a part of the natural process of decline and self-questioning that a civilization goes through. And then some of his students are also, not conspiratorial, uh, because that's a word I reject, but are in, in some way accomplices, yes, in bringing it down because they are more overtly anti-Greek. Those two viewpoints perhaps might be allowed to exist side by side. Right. But was it Socrates who even furthered the process of decline or was it putting him on trial did that? No, I think... No, I think I think he did further the process of decline. When I say that he's not the um, conspiring uh, destroyer of Greece is because I don't think that that was his desired outcome. Somebody like Diogenes, I think he really desires that. He would like to see his own culture collapse. He doesn't care about it. Socrates uh, is not like that. Uh, Socrates, I think, loves his city uh, and he refuses to disobey the laws uh, of his own city, right? When he has the opportunity to escape from prison, he says, no, the city has condemned me to death, so I have to... I have to die. Now, th that is a bit self-congratulatory, of course. I think he realizes that he's a martyr and, and he knows that part of his posthumous fame is going to be a, re a result of that. So uh, th it is a bit self-serving on the part of Socrates as well. Uh, but I think Socrates does love his own city, um, which clearly Diogenes does not. Yeah, and so um, 
I think Socrates is um, certainly questions his own city, like Euripides questions the gods or some of the gods, not all of them. But the end result there is not to bring about the demise of their own culture. And I think that's part of the reason why they are easier to like. I find the Diogenes difficult to like because he is really very orcophobic. Somebody like Euripides uh, and to a somewhat greater extent Socrates is a part in that process, but they're still fairly patriotic. I mean, there is a reason, right, why Euripides allows Athena to be the one god who actually behaves properly because it's the god of his own city whereas other gods prove disappointing. And, and so there is a certain patriotism still in, in Euripides, even though he is questioning uh, at least elements of Greek religion. And, and Socrates is like that just one step further, I would say, in that process. And then there is a bit of a fault line. You get to Diogenes and, and his ilk, who are truly anti their own culture, truly archophobic. So it's, uh, it's a bit of a spectrum that develops. But I'm still not seeing what is it about Socrates and his words and his actions that brought about or contributed to decline? Oh, I see. Okay. Obviously, we have Plato as the filter here. So early Plato is probably is more Socratic, no doubt, than, than late Plato. But what about Socrates brings about the decline or, or helps bring about the decline is that he does question certain very typical Greek attitudes and cultural norms. And, and I mean, this is all over the place. In Plato, right? You have a certain classical Greek mentality. And again, this is very taboo, right, to say, because uh, in academia, of course, uh, if you talk about a classical Greek mentality, they'll say, oh, well, this person was different and that person was different, as if a few exceptions here and there meant that there was no general mentality of which we may speak. Of course, there was. Every civilization, every society has a particular mentality, even if there are exceptions. And a typical Greek mentality was, it's a classic sentence that's uh, very well known, help your friends and harm your enemies. That's what you should do. That's not Christian, right? A Christian is to also to pray and to love your enemies as well. That's not the pagan way. That's certainly not the Greek way. If you have enemies, you try to harm them. Socrates is a bit proto-Christian in that way. He rejects that. He says things like, it is worse to suffer injustice than to commit it. Now, regardless of whether that's true or not, it's certainly a step away from the sort of violent parochialism that a society often requires, certainly in its early days, in order to survive. So it's a more humanitarian attitude, which is kind of alien to the classical Greek way and to the aspect of Greek culture, which considers Greece to be superior. Because Socrates introduces a sort of sense of value in human beings in general. He doesn't express it exactly in that way. But if you should not try to harm your enemies, if you should not go out of your way to help your friends and harm your enemies, for example, why is that? Well, because we all have something in common, right? Because we're human beings, we shouldn't try to hurt each other and so on. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm putting it in a somewhat banal way right now, but basically trying to explain that this is something that lessens the thrust of Greek exceptionalism. And any move away from that kind of parochialism, from that sort of violent chauvinism that tend to characterize early civilizational stages is a step toward orcophobia because it reduces, so to speak, the fighting spirit of a nation. And, and the thing is, people will say, well, that's not orcophobic because there is nothing anti one's own culture about also being pro other cultures or about seeing a certain common human bond. And it's true, it's not orcophobic in and of itself, but human beings en masse, right? Societies en masse are incapable of following a civilizational development up to a point, they will always exaggerate. And we see this all around us today in all different kinds of areas. 
they will always exaggerate. And so once you've taken that step that Socrates takes toward a more common human bond away from Greek exceptionalism and so on, then that spectrum, that slide cannot be stopped. So even though I wouldn't say that Socrates himself was a full-blown orcophobe, he moves in that direction, intellectually speaking. And he's very influential, of course, has lots of students who then, like Diogenes and Alcidamas and Hippias and so on, who take this to the next logical step. And, you know, he makes snide remarks, right, about, about Athens and about how they're not so special as they think they are and so on. And part of emphasizing his philosophy, right, which then becomes Plato's philosophy of, uh, of forms and so on, is to reject the physical world. Not to reject the physical world, but Plato doesn't reject the physical world, obviously. He says empiricism is still, it's an imperfect tool of understanding the world of ideas. But if you start rejecting or lessening the importance of the physical world, you're moving away from the parochialism, from the sort of um, early paganism that is the foundation of Greek culture. I think I want to resist you on this part of the analysis because it seems to me like you are bundling together two very different things. I think not all criticism is or ought to be on a spectrum with the self-destructive kind. So there's a sense in which any kind of moving in the direction of criticism, you're getting closer to it. But you take Aristotle's idea of virtue as a mean between extremes. Any step away from cowardice is bringing you closer to rashness. But it's also maybe getting you closer to the mean. And it seems to me that there is such a thing as constructive criticism. But I would, I would distinguish between historically and philosophically. Philosophically, I agree with you. But historically, it falls on a spectrum. I think that's the point I'm trying to make. There are even parts of Diogenes that I respect because philosophically, there are parts of him that I appreciate. But historically, it falls on that spectrum. And I mean, I talk about that then later on in the modern civilizations, about the liberal order and so on that will collapse in on itself. This doesn't mean that I reject all the aspects of the liberal order. I myself am a beneficiary of the, of the liberal order. So philosophically, you can look at those things without rejecting them and you can endorse the concept of self-critique and so on. And, and indeed, self-critique is important. The Romans especially will, will accept things from the outside in order to uh, improve their own civilization. But historically, these things all fall on a spectrum. Well... If the thought is you move a little bit in the direction of self-critique and what that does is it opens up this path for others. And of course, someone is going to take it one step farther. And so it turns out what the pattern is, is that even the constructive self-critique ultimately moves us toward self-destructive self-critique or something like exactly. that. Exactly. Yeah, that's, that's exactly. That's what I mean. It does seem like then somebody who moves us from, you know, blind acceptance of tradition or whatever to a constructive kind of self-critique, you would say is just as much to blame or just as much a part of the process. Right. I would say he's just as much as part of the process, but he's not as much to blame. I would certainly distinguish between those two. And I mean, this now, because I talk about the inevitability of this process, right? But this doesn't mean that, uh, how should I put it? I mean, like I said, I appreciate Euripides. I think he's one of the greatest poets. And obviously, as somebody who clearly doesn't believe in the Greek gods himself, right? I, obviously, I don't believe in the Greek gods. So in and of itself, I could never criticize Euripides for questioning the Greek gods. I would question them myself if I were confronted, if, if somebody asked me to believe in them. But it is a part of that process. You have to distinguish between causality and blame, right? So somebody can be a cause of something, 
you know, maybe a distant cause, but a cause of something further down the line without this meaning that he's to blame for it. The only person who's to blame for something is the actual perpetrator of the thing, right? So the actual perpetrator of ochophobia, such as Diogenes, he's to blame for it. But people earlier on who may have laid the groundwork for it, they did lay the groundwork for it, but I wouldn't say that they're to blame. But how can you blame him if he's just carrying out a process that's been made inevitable by the people who came before him? It does make sense because that's why I write the epilogue in the end about free will. That's not, the fact that somebody does something... Uh, <laughs> Sorry, I, uh, I uh, see your facial reaction. Maybe that will uh, be a different part of the discussion. But uh, that's why I write that part about the epilogue. The fact that something is inevitable doesn't mean that we don't ascribe blame. And I mean, I talk about this at length in the epilogue. We have to blame and reward. We have to punish and reward, even though something is inevitable. That's absolutely clear. And of course, the, as I discuss in, in my little brief history of free will in the epilogue, civilizations did this long before there was a concept of free will. It's only those of us who take free will for granted now in the modern era who think that blame and punishment and reward and so on are impossible without free will. But that's people for thousands of years have blamed and punished and rewarded and so on without having the slightest conception of free will. I had a recent podcast with Ben Burgess where I raised this criticism of Marx that Marx purports to be describing this deterministic process, but it's sort of what you criticize, I think, rightly about a lot of historic, uh, a lot of philosophers of history um, having an overly scientific kind of perspective on history. Because I, I, I read Marx and Engels, and it seems obvious to me that they're siding with their proletariat and they're rooting for certain kinds of outcomes. And it's more of philosophy that's pretending to be just a neutral description of, of a historical process. And I have a similar sort of worry here that you say, oh, I'm just describing this process. I'm not judging anyone, or at least I want my judgment to be distinct from my analysis of this process. But I know you're against oikophobia. I mean, we started the conversation with that. And so it seems to me that if you're going to say Diogenes or Euripides or any of these other people, one of the things that they did is they furthered oikophobia. I can't but help hear that as a criticism. I... It is a criticism. It's just that I do two things at the same time in the book. I point out weaknesses in the position, and there are certain, certain, several modern manifestations of oikophobia that I criticize specifically in the later parts of the book. But I, as I say in the introduction, yes, whereas I generally, in order to describe oikophobia, I find it necessary often to take a stand against it, but that's not the main goal. And I mean, as you know, the theme that runs through the book is the, is the importance of holding two thoughts, even contradictory thoughts or seemingly contradictory thoughts in mind at the same time. I can see that someone is an orcophobe and still see certain beauty in some of his work, both in, in ancient and modern times, where I say that, okay, this person is pretty orcophobic or, or certainly is a big step on the path to orcophobia, but I also really appreciate what they're doing. Tacit is a good example, right? Tacitus is definitely an expression of a declining civilization, but I love Tacit. I think he's the greatest of all Roman historians. Not as great as Thucydides, but a, certainly a very great historian and a great observer of human nature. And so uh, I, don't see, I don't see a philosophical problem with condemning someone or condemning aspects of a person. And, and this is another thing also, right? It maybe rela relates into another philosophical topic in the book, namely the bundle theory, right? the bundle of characteristics. Uh, I, I obviously, as you know, right, I take a very anti-essentialist point of view in the book. 
and I view everything as a bundle of characteristics. And so I'm able to, to both praise and, and blame and criticize and condemn at the same time. Uh, Rousseau, right? As anybody knows uh, who has read the book, I have no love for Rousseau. And yet he is one of the introductory quotes in the very beginning of the book, because there is something he said that I really liked. And, and so I, I don't see any inconsistency in that. I get the idea of like appreciating one aspect of somebody's work and not another, but it seems like the thing I'm struggling with is that it sometimes seems like it's one and the same aspect that is the target of both praise and blame, at least implicitly. And that is what I'm tripping over. But that's deliberate on my part. I, I talk about the narrow and broad view. I think already in the introduction of the book, I, I get into this and then I refer to it later, that you can really not just see different aspects of somebody's work of a person, but the very same aspect as being both positive and negative, depending on the point of view from which you view it, right? Are you looking at it in a quote-unquote broad way or are you looking at it in a quote-unquote narrow way? So, and you can do, you can apply this level of analysis to so many different things, right? I mean, feminism, right? This is a very accessible example for everyone listening, right? I believe that women should have the same rights as men. Of course I do. I mean, like most people nowadays, that's what I believe. But... That, that's the narrow view, right? And viewed from a different view, viewed from a broader view, you also see how the rise of, of how the liberation of women contributes to the effeminacy of men and thereby to the decline of civilizations. Those two viewpoints aren't exclusive. And that's part of the dilemma that, and that's part of the tragic view, right? The tragic Greek view, which I also refer to several times in the book, the fact that everything is a trade-off and the fact that everything has both positive and negative to it depending on how you view it, depending on the level of analysis that you apply to it. So um, that's what I would say. Is it simplistic of me to insist, but all things considered, okay, I've seen it from this perspective, it's good. From this perspective, it's bad. But okay, now all things considered, what's your total judgment? And it seems like you're, you're reluctant to give me that. Uh, it's not that I'm reluctant to give it. It's just that my answer would depend on when and where we are, right? So the reason, for example... A lot of people who've read the book or who've read or seen other things that I've done think that I'm a conservative, for example, right? But in fact, I'm not a conservative. Now, there are some plain philosophical reasons for that, like I don't believe in God, I don't believe in free will, and so on. Those obviously are not conservative positions. But beyond that, another reason why I'm not conservative is because I don't believe that conservative values or progressive values or any set of political values are right for all places at all times. That's a more of a, a somewhat more Hegelian view, I suppose. But basically, something that is right for a particular place in time is wrong for another place in time. In our society that we have now, the liberation of women is a good thing, right? It would not have been a good thing for all places at all times. For some places at some times, it would have caused institutional collapse and chaos and so on. It's not that I take a relativist position. It's not that I say that, oh, everything is equally valid. Uh, it doesn't matter. It's just that I'm saying, depending on the context we're looking at, depending on the place and time, I'd say this is better than that. But I cannot say that this is better than that sort of just overall. I'm not going to sort of sit back in my chair and say in a satisfied way, okay, we have now established that such and such is great, right? Maybe there are some cases that are like that, some things, but most things are not like that. So, and I think that is the tragic view of life. So there's something related to this I wanted to bring up with you, which was something else that comes up in your epilogue. You don't only endorse determinism, reject free will, you also endorse nominalism, which tell me if this is the right way to characterize it. The idea that everything that exists is a particular, so the rejection of universals, is that what you mean? 
Well, not exactly. I mean, it's not it's not exactly the same as the problem of universals, but it does mean. Now, I, I, I would probably say that I'm a moderate nominalist, right? Because I reject what I call the ultra-nominalist orcophobic critique, right? That when people say that just because something is a mental construct, it, it has no hermeneutic value or anything like that, which is a view I entirely reject. Uh, and also, uh, like, uh, nominalism that goes together with physical monism, right? So I think that basically only the physical exists. I would have thought, I would have thought that your preference for Thucydides over Herodotus points away from nominalism. Really? Why is that? Because Herodotus is more about particulars and cataloging, you know, these huge sets of particulars, mm. whereas Thucydides sees like law-like patterns. Okay. And well, yeah. that it's, it's precisely what Collingwood didn't like about Thucydides. He seems to be the nominalist and you, you resist him. So that seems like that seems not a nominalist position. I actually, in the origin, in the earlier draft of the book, I had actually written, I'm a moderate nominalist. And then I, I had added a parenthesis, or I guess some people might call me a moderate realist. Uh, and then actually I was asked by the editor to remove that because they thought I was being a little too wordy. Uh, and so I think it depends. I think it depends more on your, on your emphasis, really, if anything. I mean, I'm certainly not a militant nominalist. I mean, I, I, I have some sympathy for, for, uh, for Thomistic realism, for example. Again, some people, maybe I'm a moderate realist, doesn't really matter to me so much in which camp I, I guess I, I officially place myself. Maybe it's a pity that that part was uh, struck, I'm not sure, uh, because it could lead to misunderstanding. But um, in any case, um, yeah, it's, uh, I'm not saying you're wrong, right? Your characterization, I think, is fair. Maybe I should put some limits to, to how much I classify myself as a nominalist. But I, I certainly take a very strong stand against platonic realism, right, which I think is is extreme. And so I don't say this in the book, but I think a lot of realists or, or moderate realists are really just nominalists who are being polite. I think Aristotle falls in that category, for example. I would never deny, and maybe this to some people that would qualify me as a realist, in my mind it does not, but I would certainly never deny the the hermeneutical uh, usefulness uh, of such patterns and, uh, and of categories. Um, so. If that means I'm a moderate realist, uh, so be it. But uh, but I would not I would not say that. C.S. Peirce's view is that Aristotle is even further along the spectrum than Plato is, contrary to common belief, because Plato had his universals rooted in particulars, which were the forms, whereas for Aristotle they're purely general. So that's one perspective on this I thought is, is interesting, but I don't know as much about this debate as, as I would like to. Yeah. Yeah. I, I wouldn't refer to Plato's forms as particulars, actually, but I, 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 th I already there, I think that's a somewhat twisting of the textual evidence, to be honest. So how then would you characterize or contrast your moderate realism or moderate nominalism, whichever label you want, with, with Platonic realism? Oh, well, to that particular question, then maybe I wouldn't lay so much the emphasis on nominalism versus realism as on uh, monism versus dualism. Uh, I'm a monist, uh, right? I'm a, I'm a Stoic, basically, uh, Stoic in the sense of the early Stoics, uh, Zeno, uh, Chrysippus, and so on, who are uh, very strictly physical monists. Uh, and that's really the part of it that I would emphasize. Now, physical uh, material monism or materialism, right, would generally entail nominalism. And so that's really the reason why, uh, why I'm against Plato. That is all I have to add. Is there anything else you want to discuss that we haven't got to? 
And uh, no, well, there is so much uh, obviously that we could discuss, and I'm sure we could have a lot of stimulating conversations because you've asked interesting questions, and I like how you push back and everything like this. So I, I'm sure we could sit here for many more hours. But um, no, I think for now we've covered a lot of good ground. I agree. It's been a very stimulating discussion, and uh, we could continue this for a long time. But I think we probably ought to ought to get back to the uh, I don't know. I would say the non-Platonic realm, but you'd say we're always in the non-Platonic realm. So daily, yes. daily life, daily life. So it's great to have you, and I enjoyed reading your book very much. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure.